So we are here, welcome back, welcome back. We are here with Dr. John B. King. I am thrilled to be chatting with you today. There's a lot to cover, there's a lot to talk about. First of all, I am, you're in New York. I'm happy that you're here to talk to me. Um, you know, I, this podcast is, is all about the journey. This is, you know, something that I believe that everyone kind of comes into with. And, and I would really love to just kind of start from the beginning with you, Dr. King. Um, you have an incredible story. Could you start from the beginning and just take me through it? Sure, sure. Well, thanks for the opportunity to be a part of the conversation. So, you know, my story really starts with growing up the son of two public school educators. My mom was a teacher and school counselor. My dad was a teacher and administrator. But they both passed away when I was little. Uh, my mom when I was eight and my dad when I was 12. And in the period when it was just my dad and me, my dad was struggling with Alzheimer's. So home was incredibly difficult. Mm -hmm. I didn't know what my father would be like from one night to the next. Some nights he'd talk to me, some nights he wouldn't say a word. Mm -hmm. Some nights he'd be sad, angry, even violent. And the thing that saved me was school. Mm -hmm. Great public schools where I could be a kid when I couldn't be a kid at home. And I was just blessed to have a series of phenomenal public school teachers who made school engaging and safe and compelling. After my dad passed, I moved around different family members, different schools, and I struggled. The way a lot of young people who've experienced trauma struggle, I got in a lot of trouble. So much trouble that I'm the first United States Secretary of Education I've been kicked out of high school. Um, but I was lucky because there were, again, teachers and a school counselor who were willing to see me as more than the sum of my mistakes, were willing to invest in me, were willing to give me a second chance. And because of them, I became an educator, really to try to do for other kids what teachers had done for me. That's incredible. You say that education saved you, but you know I know that there had to have been more. You, I know that you, you navigated that time with your father and the loss of your mother in a very specific way. What, do you, what did you do at the time to kind of like, you know, deal with trauma and on a day-to-day -day basis? Yeah. I mean, in many ways, school was the place where I sort of invested my energy and focus. You know, my mom had been the school counselor in my elementary wow. school wow. Uh, when I was very little. And so school and my mom were sort of connected deeply. Yeah, yeah. And so when she passed away, I just kind of threw myself into school. And because I didn't know why my father was acting the way he was, school was the place that was stable. The safe and, place. Yeah, and yeah. I had this amazing teacher who actually looped with us, which is very unusual. He lived with you? No, looped with us, oh, with okay, our okay. class. Okay, yeah, okay. yeah. So he stayed with us in fourth, fifth, and sixth wow. grade, which is very unusual in a public school. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But he loved our class and okay. he stayed with us. I'm still in touch with him. Really? He, he saved my life. I mean, he, in his classroom, read the New York Times every day. Mm -hmm. We did a production of A Midsummer Night's Dream, Shakespeare in elementary school. We did a production of Alice in Wonderland. I was the rose with big red felt petals to get <laughs> in my head, right? I remember those things so clearly because in his classroom I was focused on our school community and learning, yeah. Yeah. and that helped me to survive yeah. at home. Yeah. You know, I remember one night, my father woke me up two in the morning, told me it was time to go to school. And I didn't know why, and I'm saying to him, it's not time it's to go outside. to school. Exactly. And we ended up on the staircase in our house. I'm holding on to the banister. My father's pulling me on the stairs, and I'm saying to him, Daddy, it's not time to go to school. It's not time to go to school. I had no idea why he was doing that. And so that's how kind of unstable and just crazy home was on a night-to-night yeah. -night basis. Yeah. And so school just took on this outsized role in my life. Wow. Uh, you, 
mentioned that you are the first United States Secretary of Education to drop out. To be of, kicked out. To be kicked out. To yeah. be kicked out. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about what was happening during that yeah. time? Yeah. You know, I, I was very angry in high school. You know, I had a lot things, to be angry for. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and didn't have a way to direct it. You yeah. know, I was angry at adults, angry at the world. In some ways, although it's irrational, even angry at my parents, just feeling like, why, why did this happen to me? Yeah. And so my response to adult rules, adult authority, was really to rebel. And, you know, when I got kicked out of high school, my life could have gone in a lot of directions. You know, it would have been easy to How say. How I was, it was um, junior year of high school. So I was 15, yeah, yeah, 16, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and so, you know, it would have been easy to say, here's a black Puerto Rican kid, family in crisis, no respect for authority. What chance does he have? And just written me off. Right. And it took a lot for family members and educators to give me that second chance. Yeah. You know, one of the things that was really powerful, my, my father's youngest brother actually took me in uh, he'd been a Tuskegee Airman, one wow. of the first African-American pilots, wow. you know, in, 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 in American history. And he, first of all, his house was very structured. <laughs> unlike, unlike my experience since I've been eight, I've been basically on my one, own. One, two, three, four. Yes, yeah, exactly. Yeah, he and his yeah. wife, you know, make dinner, that dinner at the same time, <laughs> make the bed, exactly. That was very helpful. Yeah. Um, but he also... You know, he'd, so he'd gone to Tuskegee, Alabama to learn to be a pilot. You know, he'd tell these stories of how they had to check their fuel tank to make sure that people hadn't put water in the fuel tank to try to show that black people couldn't fly by crashing their plane. Wow. You know, so he overcame this discrimination. When he came back from World War II, he wanted to be an accountant in, in New York, couldn't get a job as an accountant. Wow because of racism, so yeah. he became a firefighter, wow. right? And risked his life again for people, even though he wasn't getting treated with equality, and then went back into the military and was career Air Force. And so he had this very clear sense of one's responsibility to, to choose your life, even with all these things happening around you. And I remember the conversation we had where he said to me, look, Neither you or I can do anything about the things that happened to you as a kid, but you have to decide the kind of man you want to be, the kind of life you want to have. And that's on you now. Yeah. And that, that conversation, together with the teachers and counselors who gave me a second chance, really helped shape the trajectory of my life. That's, first of all, shout out to your uncle. For every service, and then also yes. what he did for yes. you. Yes. You know, it's it's so interesting because you know the narrative around black boys in education is always this thing around like they're they're failing, they're dropping mm -hmm. out, mm -hmm. they're violent. There, there's there's so many stereotypes around black That's boys, right. especially adolescent black boys. And I'm curious when when you hear these narratives, you must connect to it mm -hmm. some way because mm -hmm. someone probably stereotyped you and probably gave up. Yes. Do, do, what do you think was it outside of all the community and support that just kind of clicked and said, you know what, I got a second chance now, I'm turning this thing around? Yeah. You know, I think what ultimately helped me was finding ways to try to contribute in other people's lives mm -hmm. and trying to channel, you know, that second chance I was given into trying to make a difference yeah. with other folks. So whether it was in high school or college, as I got that second chance, I yeah. tried to 
you know, be a mentor, work in after school programs and summer programs, and, and really that's what drove me to become an educator, right? Trying to be that difference for someone else because if, if people had responded differently yeah. to me, I'd be in prison or dead today. And that's the reality. And that's what happens to so many young people. Yeah. You know, I testified in Maryland this year on uh, legislation around the charging of young people as adults. Right? Because in Maryland, we have many young people, they make a mistake, 15, 16, 17. They're charged as an adult in adult court. And, and that puts them on a path to a life of incarceration. And that's a choice we're making, to throw their lives away, rather than to say, how can we intervene in this young person's life to help them get back on track? I wanted, you mentioned Maryland. We have a lot to talk about with Maryland. Yeah. Um, yeah. But I just want to note that you went from a kid who got kicked out of high school to then going to Harvard, mm -hmm. graduated mm -hmm. from Harvard, mm -hmm. then decided to go to Columbia and Yale at the same time mm -hmm. and get to <laughs> How many degrees did you get? Like three, you know. And it's, and it's, it's incredible, while at the same time working a full-time job, mm -hmm. climbing up the ranks, and doing it all in service. What was your North Star? Mm, mm. Because you know, someone would say there's something in the water with this guy, man. Like, there's something, how is he doing all yeah, of this? Yeah, how is he doing yeah. all of this? Well, t two things. One, I have an amazing wife okay. who has been an incredible partner to me. Yes. She's also a teacher, Melissa. Melissa, shout exactly. out to Melissa King. Yeah, yeah. That, I mean, it wouldn't be possible without Melissa. That, let me be clear on that. But, but two, I, you know, knowing how my life could have turned out and understanding that it was luck. Truly, if I'd had a different teacher in fourth, fifth, sixth grade, I wouldn't be sitting here today. Really? And so that understanding that our systems aren't working because it shouldn't be a matter of luck. You know, there are some people who, you know, have a story like mine and what they take away is that like, they pull themselves up by their bootstraps, they're somehow superior. Yeah. I have the opposite view. Yeah. I, I'm the same as folks who are struggling in all kinds of ways. I just was lucky that there were the right interventions in the right moment. And so I feel like that I have a moral responsibility to try to be that intervention in other people's lives. Yeah, yeah. So, so take me through your career very quickly. Mm -hmm. What were the steps that you took? Because, you know, obviously, you know, being the first Afro-Latino Secretary of Education didn't just like, it didn't happen, right? right? We've already talked right. a lot That's about right. like right. your journey. Right. What was the career steps that you took? Because yeah. I know that there are going to be a lot of people who listen to you and hear you or watch you from this mm -hmm. conversation. Like, how do you do it? Like, yeah. what was yeah. it? What was yeah. it to meet the moment yeah. of that opportunity? Yeah. Well, so really starting college, that I spent a lot of time doing public service work. Got very involved in um, the Mission Hill community of Boston, which is the sort of historically African American Latino section of the city in, in Roxbury. Mm -hmm. uh, spent summers in college living in the community, working in the community, running pro summer programs, running after school programs during the school year. And that experience was incredibly satisfying, being able to contribute to the lives of my students. And so decided to become a teacher, came to Teachers College to be trained as a teacher, a high school social studies teacher, uh, taught in Puerto Rico and in Boston. Wow. Loved teaching, still teach now at University of Maryland College Park because I love teaching. But I could see that there were systems that I thought should be better at the school level and so um, became a principal and started actually a, a school in Mission Hill, that same community I'd worked in as a, as a college student. Um, loved that work, 
the school became actually the highest performing urban middle school in the state. Wow. It's an incredible tight-knit community, but it was small, mm -hmm. like 200 kids. Mm -hmm. And I kept thinking, there are systems problems that I've got to tackle. And so went to law school to try to think about those systems yeah. and how we could make better public policy. And you know, law school is really interesting. And intense. And intense. <laughs> and I spent a lot of time in the library and I started feeling like I'm spending all this time in the library, but I'm not making a difference in the right. world. Right. And so at that point, I was also working on a doctorate in education, and I felt like I just missed the, the actual work practice. in the community, the practice, exactly. Yeah. And so I started working to build a network of schools here in New York, and that was actually more fulfilling, even though it was a crazy schedule. I mean, there was a point where I was like two days a week in New Haven for law school, three days a week working on schools in New York. My wife was working on her doctorate in Boston, wow. so I'd go home to Boston on the weekend. It was crazy. And I have to mention your father, yes. too. Yes, yes, Trying to do yes, all of yes, that. yes. It was, it, that was a crazy period. <laughs> but it was very satisfying to sort of have that intersection of the learning mm -hmm. with the doing. Right. And um, so worked on that network of schools and then had the opportunity to go to Albany first as deputy commissioner and then commissioner of education for New York State. Wow. Um, which is a fascinating institution because in New York, the education department oversees K-12, higher ed, museums and libraries, public television stations, the licensing of professions. A lot of power. Uh, it's a huge, sprawling responsibility and fascinating. And I learned a tremendous amount. Did a lot of work with the Obama administration and that's what led me then to joined the Obama administration, first as deputy secretary and then as secretary. Wow. Do, do you think, and this is something that I, I really, when I was thinking about kind of questions to ask you, um, you've been the first at a lot of things, mm. right? Mm. Um, and I think in this, this continuation of like conversations around diversity and inclusion, what is diversity and inclusion? Mm -hmm. What does that really mean? And you're always hearing the first of this, the first of that. Um, does that give you hope or does that burden you a little bit. First of all, you feel the way that people are judging you not just by who you are, but and who you, what you've tried to do in your life, but with all these assumptions that come with race and gender, right? Then and, and so that you know that you're carrying that responsibility and whether that's good or bad, it just is that you have that weight with you all the time. Um, you know, I have, I'm very conscious that I've been very lucky to have mentors and folks who've intervened at different points in my life. And when I walk in a room and I'm the only person of color in the room, mm -hmm. the only man of color in the room, the only African American man, the only Latino man in the room, mm -hmm. I say to myself, there's something broken about our systems that produce this and like, how do we fix that? You know, I think about there's this group of funders, education philanthropy funders, and for years they would invite me to come speak at their sessions. And every time I'd walk in the room, and there was no diversity in the room. And finally, I remember one year I just said, you know, look, I don't think I can come back again <laughs> if this room doesn't look yeah. different. Yeah. Right? Like, find somebody on your team 
bring them into this room so that they're part of this conversation so that they have the opportunity. But we've got to, if we're trying to create a more just society, we cannot have this room be so homogenous again. And so there's that just constant tension of wanting to push towards greater diversity and inclusion and also knowing that you know, that can make people uncomfortable and, and that means I'm constantly making people uncomfortable. Yeah, I mean, sometimes just walking in the room can That's right. That's be right. enough, right, to just That's right. make the statement. Um, right. During your, your time with the Obama administration, is there any like specific story or experience that you could highlight for us? Um, I think that you know, many people, uh, it's almost, it's, it's becoming, it's almost like, did that happen? Right. <laughs> it's like, right. was that real? Right. 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 I, I saw some pictures like a, a couple of days ago of, of, of like, you know, Barack and Michelle on the campaign in like 2007. Mm -hmm. I was like, look at them. Like, oh my gosh. Yeah. I was like, yeah. wow. I was like a yeah. kid back then. You know, <laughs> and, and, and now yeah. it's like, you know, 15 years later. Yeah. Is, is there anything that you could highlight for us or something that you were like, you know, Brennan, your listeners should know this yeah. about that? Yeah. Experience. Yeah. yeah. So two things, one policy and one just like life. So on the policy side, you know, one of the president's initiatives that I was very involved in and helped lead was My Brother's Keeper, which was about trying to have a positive impact on life outcomes for boys and young men of color. And we convened all the federal agencies to ask, what can we do in every agency to try to tackle get opportunity gaps that face boys and young men of color. And that grew into initiatives on housing, on labor, on education. And one that I was particularly proud to be involved in was trying to restore access to Pell Grants for folks who are incarcerated. Mm -hmm. Because in the 94 Crime Bill, one of the many dumb policies that was adopted uh, was to say that if you're incarcerated, you can get federal assistance for higher education. And so college programs and prisons all over the country closed overnight. A few stayed open with philanthropy. I talked to one woman who was in prison at the time. Guards came, took the books out of the library and said, you're not going to need these anymore. Right? Is that tough on crime mentality of the mid-90s. So we wanted Congress to repeal that ban. But as a Republican Congress, they wouldn't do it. So we used our authority under the Higher Education Act to create a pilot program called Second Chance Pell to provide Pell Grants for folks who are incarcerated. Visiting those programs will always be with me, thinking about folks for whom, in some cases, this was their first time that they felt like they got a serious educational opportunity. Mm. And they would describe how life-changing it was, not just because they would have different prospects when they got home, but because of what it meant to their family, to their kids. Yeah. You know, I remember one guy saying to me, this is the first time I have moral credibility with my kids because they know I'm pursuing higher education wow. right now. So I think you know, it's important that people remember how committed President Obama and Mrs. Obama are to education and to closing equity gaps. And it doesn't mean everything we did in the Obama administration was right, but I, but I want people to know how passionate they were about justice. The, the more, uh, more life experience thing that was amazing, as part of the My Brother's Keeper work, there was a White House uh, kind of mentoring program, young men of color. And so we had a luncheon in the White House. So the president, there were maybe five of us who were African-American men in, in the cabinet. And 
a group of young men. Just saw having lunch at the White House. And even just like saying it, it feels mm -hmm. weird, you know? Mm -hmm. And we're sitting around the table, and one of the young men asked the president, uh, what, are your, what were your keys to success? And President Obama said, well, and he took the question very seriously. You know, that's the kind of question I'm sure he gets all the time, but he took it really seriously, and he said two things. One is, in college, I learned that I was never going to let anybody outwork me. Somebody might be more talented, they might be smarter than me, but they're never going to out, outperform me because they worked harder. Wow. And he used the example of Steph Curry. And he said, you know, Steph Curry is not, he's not the hugest guy, but he works on his shot all the time. And I thought that was really powerful. And then the second thing he said was, the other thing is reading. And you can see everyone sort of sit up in there See, like, what do you mean by that? And he said, well, you know, growing up, having had these different cultural experiences, being mixed, living overseas, I've always seen the world from other people's perspectives. But through reading, you really get the opportunity to live inside of somebody else's shoes, to see the world through their eyes, whether it's a, you know, the main character in a novel or, or the subject of a biography. And, so I always read with that in mind, trying to understand issues from other people's right. perspective. And right. that's made me a better leader. And you could see everyone in the room just wrapped attention. It was so powerful. And you know, he was, it was very inspiring to be a part of the Obama administration every day. Man, I can't wait when that movie comes out. That's <laughs> going to be a good movie. <laughs> I, I'm looking forward to it. All right, so, so here we are um, in 2022. Um, we are coming out of a global pandemic. Um, there has been, I, I feel like in, in many cases, uh, a national conversation around race in America. Um, there is so many different political things happening in this country, and we could talk about a little bit of them. Living in Maryland, you're very conscious that the state is incredibly wealthy, but also has these incredible gaps in opportunity incredible equity gaps, deep equity gaps. You know, Maryland has the highest rate of incarceration of young black men in the country, higher than Alabama, higher than Mississippi. We have some of the best schools in the country. My kids have gone to Montgomery County schools. They've had an amazing public school experience. But we also have schools in the city of Baltimore that a few weeks ago had to close because it's so hot and there's no air conditioning. Right? So we have this, this um, history of these disparities. And in my family, that history runs very deep. I live in Silver Spring, Maryland, in Montgomery County, about 25 miles from where my great-grandfather was enslaved in Gaithersburg, Maryland. Oh, wow. Yeah, Whoa. yeah. Okay. The property where my great-grandfather was enslaved still owned to this day by the family that are direct line descendants of the family that enslaved my family. And it's been this incredible journey, getting to, getting to know them and spending you, time you, on You know them? Oh, yeah. Yeah, oh. we've become friends, I would say. I mean, we have a complicated shared history, <laughs> let's be clear. But, uh, yeah, we've built a relationship. Uh, I've spent time on the property, which they've maintained just as it was in the 1860s. Same main house that was built in the 1700s. And the cabin that my great-grandfather and his family lived in still standing on the property. Okay. All right. And, you know, I'll give you an example of, of the relationship we built. So they were using the quarters yeah. 
as a storage shed until they met us. And as our families have gotten to know each other, they've cleaned it out, and they now see it as uh, historical preservation. Um, so, you know, they've been open to, to learning through our conversation, and we've learned from them. It's been, you know, a fascinating journey. Yeah. But our history in Maryland, that, that, that's part of the history, yeah. right? Maryland was on the Union side, but their ancestors went and fought for the Confederacy because they wanted to maintain the institution of slavery. Yeah. You know, Maryland was not included in the Emancipation Proclamation because Maryland was on the Union side. And so enslaved people in Maryland continued to be enslaved on the Union side throughout the Civil War. So that history of slavery, of segregation, of redlining, still shape so many of the disparities in Maryland. And a moral responsibility to, to our ancestors, I believe, who survived so that I could live today, who live with a faith in a future they could not see, we have an obligation to them to try to build a more just future in the state. Are, are there anything, first of all, wow. Um, wow, I, I'm still processing uh, <laughs> that. In, I'm sure you have a lot more stories to say about what that kind of, what those conversations look yes, like. Yes. Um, that had to be very complicated, but I'm interested yes. in, in, in maybe we can talk offline about that because we're going to yeah. respect your time. Now, one thing that I will say, uh, this is on a lighter note because yeah. you know I cannot, yeah. I cannot end the conversation in despair. <laughs> that's right. That's right. I can't. We're, we're gonna make we, progress. We, yeah, we, we're, we're, we're making progress. Yes, it's yes, you know, yes. um, you know, it's it's yeah. it's an interesting time. Yeah. But um, you know what do you do for fun? There is a lot of work that you do, <laughs> clearly, but yeah. you gotta yeah. have fun, Dr. King. Yes. There has yes. to be some, yes. do you yes. listen to music, man? <laughs> what do you do, <laughs> you know what I mean? Your father and two young girls, like, yeah. I mean, like, what, yeah. what, like yeah. what do you do yeah. for fun, man? Yeah, I will say that, that the kids are just a tremendous source of joy, you know. When I was, um, when, well, when, as my kids have been growing up, I've always, you know, kind of been rooting on whatever they're doing. Mm -hmm. So uh, when my older daughter was down in college, when she was younger and she played softball, I coached softball. That was like the joy of my day to be on the field with her and her teammates. Um, you know, then she got into theater. She's actually studying acting in college. And so every show, you know, I'm there because I'm I, I love dad. celebrating. Exactly. You're that, you're that girl exactly. Dad. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> My younger daughter is into track and field. She actually, I gotta say, she came in third in the state championships in high jump. Amazing. So rooting them on, and that is just such a tremendous source of joy. Um, but you know, the truth well, is, who's your favorite hip hop yeah. artist? Let's start there. Who's your favorite hip hop artist? Who's your favorite rapper? Let's start there. If you would have I would say the best, the best, no, the You best came up in New York, man, in a golden era. I have to you say, have the, to best, the best hip-hop album. Okay. Oh, album. And maybe best album ever. Okay. Lauryn Hill. Oh, Miseducation. Exactly. So I think we can all, yeah. Exactly. We're, we're here, we're, we're, okay. Exactly. Okay, all right, we're exactly. good. We're good with that. <laughs> <laughs> Favorite TV show. Favorite TV show. Mm. Miseducation, mm. education. Mm. I like mm. that, the connection. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, right now we've been watching a lot of dark series like okay. Ozarks, okay. you know, intense, dark. Um, Did you finish it? Yeah, yeah. I didn't like the way it Yeah. Ended. I was kind of disappointed. No, I agree with, I I agree with you. I agree with you. I appreciate the nods, but like yeah. a, the, the music was great, but the way it ended was kind of Yeah, 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 I agree with you. Okay. Um, you know, when I, when I was uh, 
growing up, I watched, you know, all the sitcoms that were like the classics, you know, mm -hmm. like a different world, mm -hmm. right? That was that that was my era of sitcoms. TV. Yeah, 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 yeah. Solid TV era. Yeah. So as we close, appreciate that. Thank you for engaging yeah. with me. Yeah. Some people yeah. don't want to engage. They're like, <laughs> really, Brittany? You want to talk about albums? Like, you want to talk about? Like, yeah, man. Like, a person's musical yeah, taste. Yeah, yeah. A person's musical taste is important. <laughs> It's important, right? As we close, what would you say is your hope for Maryland? Mm. And, I, and I ended with mm. that. Yeah. What is your hope for yeah. Maryland? My hope, particularly in this moment where there are so many threats to our democracy, is that Maryland can be a North Star, a bright light, a beacon for the country, and be the example that we can have economic success and shared prosperity, that we can have quality schools for kids in every part of the state, that we can make progress on issues of racial inequity that have been with us from the beginning.